Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. My name is Daniel Spence. I'm a postgraduate student pursuing a master's degree in criminal justice and human rights, and I'm the editor for the research team at LawPod. The following interview with writer and political activist George Monbiot was recorded on the 26th of March by Dr. Peter Doran at the Imagine Festival in Belfast. Please enjoy. Okay, uh, George Monbiot um, here at uh, Duke's Hotel, and uh, we're going to launch into our, our interview for the Law School podcast. George, your um, I think your talks at the moment and your your most recent book, Out of the Wreckage, um, focuses a lot around the the power of the story, and that you know I, I think there's there's almost a, a genre at the moment, uh, observing that we are in, in many ways between stories. That sense that mm-hmm. uh, something is falling apart, mm-hmm. and is something coherent emerging. Could you just talk a little bit about? Your, uh, your focus on narrative and the importance of narrative at this moment? Well, we are creatures of narrative. Um, to try to interpret the world through data is simply too much for the human world, uh, for the human brain to bear. Um, we um, are constantly bombarded by data streams, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, the information we get from the people around us, from, from the natural world, from our own highly complex minds, Um, And we need a shortcut, we need a heuristic which tells us who we are, where we are, where we stand in relation to others, where we might be going. And narrative is what we've used for tens of thousands of years to um, give us that shortcut and enable us to have some means of interpreting this phenomenally complex world. So when we try to make sense of the world, the sense we seek is not the sense that a scientist or philosopher might recognise, but it's narrative sense. Is this a story I recognise? Does it unfold as I expect it to unfold? Does it have a beginning, a middle and an end? Who, who's the hero? Who's the villain? We're, 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 we're constantly trying to interpret the world by those means. And as a result, those who tell the stories run the world. Um, it's It's not... Uh, powerful political leaders or parties or movements that in and of themselves run the world. It is the the narratives that they project. And when you look back on the past 80 years of history, you'll see them fairly neatly divided between the Keynesian era and the neoliberal era. And during both of those periods, the dominant narrative Keynesian social democracy followed by neoliberalism became almost universal. It didn't matter whether you were a Republican, Conservative or Labour or, or um, a Democrat, you, um, uh, you called yourself a Keynesian. Uh, even Richard Nixon is said to have um, claimed at one point we're all Keynesians now. Um, and then after the neoliberal transition, after the sort of decline of Keynesianism in the late 1970s, um, within a few years, pretty well everyone was a neoliberal. Um, 
Labour were neoliberal. The Democrats were neoliberal. Um, everybody had gone along with that narrative, and it didn't seem to matter what your history was, what your party was, what your colours were, what you claimed to have stood for. You fell into line with the common sense of the era, which was the the most powerful, dominant, hegemonic story. So that leads us to an interesting thought, which is that if you want to change the world, you have to change the story. And the reason why we are stuck with neoliberalism, despite its evident and manifest failures, uh, which came together in the 2008 financial crash, was that we had produced no new story with which to replace it. Following the Great Depression, Keynes sat down, wrote his general theory and said, hey presto, I've got a new story. Um, uh, for some 30 or 40 years, the neoliberals, um, starting in the 1940s, wrote their story. And when the moment came, they were able to come forward and say, oh, that Keynesian nonsense, that's all fallen apart, so here, we can hand it to you on a plate, a new story. I'm politically dissolved, thank you very much. Neoliberalism falls apart, and we step forward and say the new story is, oh, uh, mm, yes, well, um, we haven't really thought of one. Uh, maybe go back to Keynesianism, Ooh, or maybe a bit of neoliberalism, but not as much as before. Or maybe it didn't go far enough, we need more neoliberalism. And the result is, we're stuck with neoliberalism. So I'm interested um, in the, the relationship between narrative and power. So there's two, two thoughts that occur to me when you present that. Um, the first one is that it sounds like a, an Anglo-American reading of the competition between two dominant uh, paradigms. So it's a bit, uh, uh, well, it's Anglo-American-centric, you might say. Um, and then the, you know, when you say produce a new story, that story must be aligned with new uh, configurations of power. Mm. Um, it's not going to happen because we wish it into existence. In fact, it might be arguable that uh, what we're witnessing in the face of neoliberalism and possibly in the service of neoliberalism is a fragmentation of stories, a fragmentation of narratives mm. that serves to continue to conceal that dominant uh, story. Well. So on, on, on the first question, um, certainly it is um, a very powerful um, clash uh, that you could see happening um, in the UK and, and in the US. But it's been the same throughout the Anglosphere. Um, we see it, um, uh, it um, uh, very powerfully expressed in Australia, um, in Canada as well. Um, and then there are other countries where we've seen more or less a switch from Keynesian social democracy to neoliberalism along the same lines, India being a, a, a prime example of that. So it might not be in its extreme form a global phenomenon, though there's elements of it everywhere, even in Sweden, even, even in the Netherlands. So, you know, they were social democratic for longer than we were, but they've switched to neoliberalism. Um, and as a result, they got um, hit just as hard by the financial crash. Um, same in Southeast Asia. Um, sometimes it was a forced switch when the IMF um, forced them to uh, countries like um, Thailand and Indonesia to rip down their capital controls and switch from a fairly state-heavy um, e e economy to um, 
a much more neoliberal one with catastrophic consequences triggering the Asian financial crisis of 97 to 98. So there is a global element to this, uh, but you're right to observe that it was developed to a greater extent than anywhere else. Certainly the, well, yeah, both Keynesianism um, and neoliberalism in the UK and the US. So, so that's the answer to the first part of the question. On, on the second part, I mean, of course it, it is true that the power of neoliberalism came about from its backing by intensely powerful interests. Um, with the formation in 1947 of the Mont Pelerin Society, um, whose purpose was to create a sort of neoliberal international to project the ideology around the world. Um, some of the world's richest people, people from immensely rich families, um, uh, supported it, provided backing for it, because what it effectively said was, this is a Darwinian process, uh, the people who are at the top deserve to be at the top. Anything which interferes with that process through redistribution via taxation, through regulation, through trade unions is illegitimate and should be stamped out. Of course, the billionaires loved it, and they still do. And so they set up around the world think tanks and academic departments, um, uh, newspapers. They um, uh, infiltrated government. They infiltrated journalism. Um, until this extreme fringe idea went mainstream. Um, so there was power there, but there are different ways of mobilising power, and there are means of mobilising demotic power. Um, and, um, and if you're going to have major democratic movements which are going to be effective, they need a story. They need a narrative. The narrative becomes a vehicle for an effective movement. Now, it can be an effective movement of billionaires, so it becomes a vehicle by which power reinforces itself, or it can be an effective movement of um, young people um, on climate strike, for instance, challenging power. But we all need a story. If, if, if we're going to move forward, if we're not going to end up as a reactive oppositional movement, which is constantly responding to somebody else's agenda, can you uh, describe some of the elements of the narrative that are converging? You know, I, I presume you're talking about elements that will address both the <clears throat> ecological crisis as well as the social, and maybe even a values crisis. Yeah. That these elements have to converge, and they must speak as much to somebody in London as in uh, Bogota, for example. Yes. Well. The first thing to say is this is a work in progress um, that, and I um, uh, am one of many people um, working on that progress and hoping to take it forward. Um, I don't think this is something that any one person can do by themselves or should do. We, we should do this collectively. Um, but one thing which has been very helpful to me has been to recognise that almost all successful political and religious transformations over the course of hundreds, even thousands of years, have used not just narrative, but a particular narrative structure, regardless of what their particular politics or aims might be. Um, we talk about there being three basic plots, or five, or seven, or nine, um, doesn't really matter, but there's one basic plot which is used again and again in political and religious revolutions. And this is what I call the restoration story. And it goes like this. Disorder, 
afflicts the land, caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero or heroes confronts those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds, overthrows them and restores order to the land. It's the Lord of the Rings story, it's a Narnia story, it's a Harry Potter story, it's a Bible story and it's almost every political story you've ever heard. And it seems to be the one that wins. That's the one um, that in the sort of battle of stories comes out on top again and again and again. That's the narrative structure that our minds appear to be attuned to. So my quest is to find a story or stories that um, fit that narrative structure and act as a vehicle for the changes that we want to see. So if we're looking um, at environmental issues, for example, um, you can slot them very neatly into that story. The land has been thrown into disorder. Well, the world has been thrown into disorder by powerful and nefarious forces. Hmm, let me think who those are. ExxonMobil, the Koch brothers, um, the, uh, uh, the American Petroleum Institute, Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, there's plenty of people you can slot into that. But the heroes of the story, well, that's us. Um, we're taking them on, particularly the young people, the you know, very heroic people with great moral authority, um, with their climate strikes, with Extinction Rebellion, will confront those powerful forces against the odds, overthrow them and restore order to the land. Well, so what does overthrowing them look like? What does restoring order look like? In ecological terms, I think we've got a fairly good idea of what restoring order looks like. Overthrowing them, well, you know, already we're seeing some very clear demands, you know, so we... we uh, and one of them I would put forward would be the uh, a crime of ecocide championed by the great Polly Higgins, who um, has been trying to make, um, fill the gap in international law, international human rights law. It's, it's a fifth element that ought to be there and isn't. Um, and that can um, overthrow the powerful forces. I mean, it could radically change the balance of power. Um, if people start thinking, hmm, well, I end up in The Hague for this, then we might see a very different disposition of forces when, when it comes to um, the current destruction of, of the living planet. Now, if you were to look at it from a more political perspective, um, which is the one I've been trying to develop a bit more at the moment, simply because the environmental one seems so obvious and so easy to, to fit into that structure, it might go something like this. Um, the land has been thrown into disorder, the land being our political settlement, um, uh, the, the social contract, if you like, by powerful and nefarious forces, neoliberalism, which is um, atomizing and ruling, which is trying to split us apart and prevent us from coming together to be effective. Um, uh, but we, the heroes of the story, that's us again, <laughs> um, confront those powerful and nefarious forces by coming together. <clears throat> by reasserting both political and broader community, geographical community included, but um, community based on bridging rather than bonding networks, in other words, which isn't about homogenous groups of people, but is about reaching out beyond. Um, and we establish a politics of belonging, which um, roots us, in our um, histories, but also in the future that we, 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 we want to reach, which brings us back together so that we can once more take collective action 
in a world in which we have been set apart, told we are apart, in, in which we have a whole lexicon of apartness, of lone rangers and soul traders and self-made men and women, it brings us back together, which is the only position from which we can fight those powerful and nefarious forces. Um, and in, um, in, in coming together, we change the political dispensation, we um, uh, replace the broken social contract with the one that, that we prefer, and we restore order to the land, we restore order to the polity. And uh, you've focused um, in parts of your book on the uh, the reemergence of the commons. Mm. And I just wonder, uh, that's a particularly important one for uh, members of the legal community to hear. Mm. It's, it's, it's one of the places where we might locate ourselves mm. in terms of transformation. What is the significance of the commons and commoning as a, as a practice? Because I think you recognise that it's not just a about relationships to things, but about our orientation to the world. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that, especially with the, the, the legal community um, yeah. listening? Yeah. So, um, when we position ourselves politically, we tend to do so along one axis, with state at one end and market at the other. And if you're on the left, you say, I want more state, less market. And if you're on the right, you say, I want more market, less state. And in so doing, we shut down our political and economic options because there are actually four major pillars of the economy. There's a state and there's a market, and they're both important. Then there's the household, massively neglected by economists. There's a wonderful book by Catherine Marcel called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, showing that his long-suffering mother, Margaret Douglas, was actually doing all the work, all the economy within the household while he was writing his great works, but um, her hands remained invisible. Um, and then there's the commons, the fourth pillar, which was once the dominant economic sector, but was attacked by both market and state, which grabbed its resources, dispersed the commoners, and more or less destroyed the sector. But there's still small elements of it remaining. Now, a commons can be defined, I think, as a particular resource, which could be any sort of resource. It could be a piece of land, it could be a river, it could be a population of fish, it um, could be an internet platform, it could be a piece of software, um, a community broadband uh, outfit, a community interest company. There's lots of different resources. It could be a cooperative um, with a, a, a resource at its heart. Um, but it's a, it needs a resource to be a commons. It also needs a particular community that manages that resource. And it needs the rules and negotiations established by that community in order to manage it effectively. And the interesting elements of the commons, from my point of view, is that the resource is supposed to be inalienable. You can't sell it and you can't give it away. And straight away, you can see that there's a duty of care wrapped up in that. That um, if it's not going to be sold or given away, um, then they're implicit in that bargain, in that deal, is the idea that future generations should be able to inherit and use it in the same state that it's in today, or ideally better. Um, it's also the case that in um, a commons, either the resource itself or the, or the product from that resource is shared equally amongst its members. So it's distributive rather than concentrating. So a classic example is, is the allotments, where I've got a plot. Um, 
my local allotment association is 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 a very good example of a commons um, you've got the resource which is the land the, the the total land that the allotment association controls the community which is the association um, the rules and negotiations and boy do we have quite a lot of those <laughs> plenty of meetings um, to to work out how it should best be managed and lots of negotiations about um, can can I keep bees in my plot or is it going to sting the person next door and are my trees overshading um, your vegetables and and so we need we need clear rules so we we know where we stand um, and in this case it's not the product which is equally divided because um, it's up to you um, what you grow and you can take it all home for yourself but it's the resource which is equally divided. It's shared equally amongst its members, which is the land. So you all get the same size plot um, and you all operate under the same same, same conditions in, in gardening it. Um, and what you've got in, in this case is a, um, a, a situation which is community building. It's inherently friendly. Yeah, you get the odd dispute, but you get lots of love affairs and you get lots of people meeting each other across community boundaries. This is you know, very interesting to me that um, where I've got an allotment, um, it was um, uh, uh, during the war um, used almost exclusively by um, older white men. Um, and uh, then after the war, gradually those older people, they died off and there was a bit of a hiatus, but then suddenly um, immigrant communities from the Caribbean and from South Asia um, um, started arriving in the city and they wanted land. And, and so they took the allotments on. In fact, if they hadn't, those allotments would have gone because they would have fallen into disuse and the council would have said, oh, we'll, we'll build some houses here. So, so, so they took those on and they kept them alive for long enough for the young white hippies to come along and say, oh, I'm interested in gardening. And you, you know, during the 1990s, there was a massive resurgence of interest in growing your own food. Um, and, and then other communities, I mean, my next door neighbor on my allotment is a Serb refugee. Um, there's a fantastic mixture of people. So surrounding me, I've got some, uh, a person from Serbia, um, a um, person from Guyana, uh, a person from Trinidad, uh, and and then further on down the plot, there's someone from Pakistan, there's someone from Gujarat. Uh, there's, um, there must be 20 nationalities in this one allotment association of about 100 plots. It's a quite remarkable thing. And we've all got something in common. And what you're doing there is creating a bridging network. You're getting out of your little box. You're, you're, you're meeting people from other communities. Um, but you're meeting them around a common interest and a common aim. And, and, you know, you can live in a city for a long time and not engage properly with people from other communities. Um, but if you've got something that you're doing together, then it, it kind of forces you to, but it, you don't have to be forced because you've got the common interest that's established. Very good. Just to end, George, we're addressing, uh, for the most part, uh, a legal audience, including lots of young people preparing for a, a career in law. If you map some of your hopes, your ideas onto the, I suppose, the sphere of law, um, what would you say to those who are um, preparing to go into the world to make a, a difference? 
What is their role and uh, how does it map onto some of your ideas in the book, Out of the Wreckage? Well, the first thing is we need you. We need good lawyers. Um, and um, you know, so many people have had their lives trashed because they have not had good lawyers. But you know, we really need human rights lawyers and environmental lawyers and certainly criminal lawyers as well. We don't need more corporate lawyers, thank you. We've got plenty enough of those and they're stitching the rest of us up. So, you know, let, let's you know, use this incredibly powerful tool for good. And there is so much good you, you can do with it. And, you know, one of the things I would emphasise is we desperately need this law of ecocide, this crime of ecocide. Um, because at the moment, uh, companies and states can literally get away with mass murder, with major crimes against humanity, by destroying ecosystems, by destroying a habitable climate um, in their own pursuit of profit, um, with devastating consequences for other people, and there are no legal sanctions. This is extraordinary, a remarkable state of affairs, and I would love to see a new generation of lawyers come forward and uh, take forward uh, the work of Polly Higgins and others who, who have really pioneered the idea that ecocide should be a crime. George Bundell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. You can follow us on social media or on Twitter at QBLawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and this was LawPod.